standing and pray with me. Almighty God, we come before you this morning and we desire to be astonished again at the news that is so good about your son Jesus and that in him God's kingdom has come on earth. And so, Father, feed us, we pray, by this astonishment. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Well, at Christchurch, we are entering a period of good, good transitions. We've been talking about this for, so, for several weeks now. And we're looking in this next season of life for God to lead us into uh, another fruitful period in the life of our church. And as we enter this season of life, I want us to have a clear sense of who we are, what we're about and where we're going. And so over the next several months, I'm going to be unpacking an answer to this question. What does it mean for us in the next season of life to be a Christian church deeply rooted in Christ and in Winston-Salem for the glory of God and for the life of our neighbors? What does it mean for us in the next season of life to be a Christian church deeply rooted in Christ and in Winston-Salem for the glory of God and the life of our neighbors. And last week we started by going right to the core, right to the heart of who we are. We are a Christian church. More than we are an Anglican church, we are a Christian church. We are a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is a Christian church? You didn't know you were coming with a pop quiz. Does anyone remember what... A Christian church is? I said it in a way that's probably not memorable. (laughs) A Christian church is a people called by God to gather around the magnetic center of the good news. A Christian church is a people called and gathered by God to form around, its life is to be around this magnetic center of the good news of Jesus Christ. And last week we began to unpack what that good news is. And we saw from Mark's gospel that the good news is that in Jesus, God's kingdom has come. It has arrived on earth. Just listen again to, how, to this from Mark's gospel. Remember, Mark begins his gospel in chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so... When we encounter Jesus for the first time in his gospel, we want to pay attention. And that's what we find in verses 14 and 15 of, verse of chapter 1. And Mark records this. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news. And saying, now here's the proclamation of that good news. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the gospel, the good news. The central fact of Jesus' life is that in him, the kingdom of God has finally come. And as a church, this is the central fact of our lives together, of our, the life of this church. So Christ Church, we are a people called by God to gather around the magnetic center of this good news that in Jesus Our Lord, God's kingdom, has finally come on earth. But as we engaged last week, what does that mean? 
What does that mean that God's kingdom has come in Jesus? And in the Gospels we saw, particularly in Mark's, but all the Gospels, Jesus explains what it means through four things. Through his miracles, his teachings, but primarily in his parables, his death and his resurrection. And last week we looked at those first two, his miracles and his parables. And we saw that Jesus' miracles are a window through which we can catch a glimpse Not the full picture of it, but just a glimpse of God's coming kingdom. We see a renewed cosmos from which Satan and the forces of the demonic forces have been cast out, where sickness and pain are to be no more, the creation restored to its original beauty and harmony, and death itself is gone forever. We saw that in those four miracles at the end of Mark chapter 4 throughout Mark chapter 5. But we also looked at Jesus' parables and we learned four things. One, the kingdom of God does not come in irresistible power. People reject it. The seeds of the kingdom do not all germinate and live. Some of them are choked out by thorns and thistles. Some of them never germinate at all. So the kingdom of God does not come in irresistible power. Second, it does not come all at once. Though we would love for it, it's like that mustard seed. It's planted, it's so tiny, and then over time, over time, it grows and it grows. Third thing we learned is that though it begins in humility, in the future, the kingdom of God will be impossible to ignore when Jesus returns as universal judge to bring his wrath and judgment. And then fourth, we learn that God is waiting to bring his kingdom in fullness so that more people can be added to the banquet, so that more people can come into his kingdom. God right now is in a period of suspension. His kingdom is in a period of suspension so that others can come into it before Christ returns as universal judge. That's what we looked at last week, how Jesus explains through his miracles and parables the meaning of the good news that in him God's kingdom has come. Now this morning we're going to look at how he explains that same good news through his death and resurrection, how he explains that same good news through his death and resurrection. In his death, Jesus secures the victory of God's kingdom. In his death, Jesus secures the victory of God's kingdom. When we follow the life of Jesus in the Gospels, it doesn't matter which one we pick, dealer's choice, we eventually encounter Jesus on the cross. We encounter the death of Jesus. And we see that through his death, God accomplishes something quite remarkable. He accomplishes salvation by dealing the death blow to sin, to evil, and to even death itself. That in the death of Jesus, God is at work to bring about victory. You see, the cross is not some loss that the resurrection rectifies that makes a victory. No, the cross in itself Certainly seen through the lens of the resurrection, but the cross itself is not a loss. It is victory. Through Jesus' death on the cross, God is at work dealing a death blow to sin, evil, and to death itself. We heard that in, in Paul's 
uh, exegesis of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15 this morning, the final enemy to be conquered is death itself. And so when we look at Jesus' crucifixion through the lens of his resurrection, then we see that in his death we have God's self-giving love and mercy. For God loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We also see his faithfulness and grace. We see his justice and righteousness. All these things are on full display in the cross. It's on the cross that Jesus acts to accomplish God's purpose to save all creation, to bring about for all creation what we see in those glimpses of God's kingdom in the miracles. The cross secures for all of creation and for every single one of you what Jesus did in those miracles. They will, one day they will not be isolated events. But they will be true for each of you and they will be true for all of creation. That's the promise, that's the good news of God's kingdom coming in Jesus. All four of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, devote enormous space to Jesus' crucifixion. And they show us that it was through his death on the cross that Jesus does three things in particular to secure the victory of God's kingdom. Three things that Jesus does on the cross through his death. He wins the battle against Satan and the dark forces of this world, death being the final one. He wins the battle against Satan, conquering evil and death and the dark forces that are ravaging God's good creation. This is what we hear at the empty tomb in the angel's perplexed question to those perplexed women who come to find Jesus' body. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Why do you seek the living among the dead? And what's the reason that he asks this question? For he has risen. He's victorious. Why do you come to the loser circle to find the victor? Jesus' death on the cross ironically results in the end of Satan and death's reign over creation and humanity. That is the unanimous testimony of the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament. Though death is still very much present in our world, and in our lives, and though we suffer, we suffer real pain and loss at its hands, it no longer reigns over us as some fearful master. It no longer reigns over us. Death is a defeated foe. At the end of that long exegesis of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul erupts in a victorious thanksgiving. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a really theological way of saying nana nana boo boo. (laughs) Gotcha. We won. Christ won. Death, where are you? You're nowhere to be found. He battles against Satan and he wins. Second, he sacrifices himself for us. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world through his own sacrificial death. This is so clear in John's gospel. 
John identifies him, the Baptist identifies him as the Lamb of God who does just that. And then as Paul declares in our lesson from 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. As the Lamb of God, Jesus died on the cross in our place and for our sin. He bore our guilt and our shame and suffered our punishment unto death so that we might experience true life in the presence of God. That's good news. That's the gospel. In Mark chapter 15, when the hardened Roman centurion, a centurion is a the commander of a hundred men in the Roman army. This, this gentleman was not in some nice place in the world. He was a battle-hardened soldier. But in Mark 15, when this battle-hardened Roman centurion, who's overseeing Jesus' crucifixion, hears his dying words upon the cross, he erupts with this. Truly, this man was God's son. And at that same moment, Mark records that the curtain in the temple that separated the holy of holies from everyone else but a high priest once a year, that holy of holies that veiled the place of God's presence from the people, that that curtain was ripped in two from top to bottom to tell us that it was not by human hands. Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross has opened up once for all the way into the very presence of God. The Holy of Holies, where God's presence dwells. Jesus' death on the cross opens this way for us because he has died for us as our sacrificial lamb. As the author of Hebrews exhorts us in chapter 10, verses 19 through 21, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a pure heart. You have access to the Father. Just as the same author back in chapter 4 says, we can now draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. By the work of Jesus on the cross. Lastly here, Jesus represents us. So not only has Jesus battled Satan and won, conquering evil and death, not only has he offered himself as a sacrifice on our behalf and in our place, Jesus also represents us. He did all this, the fight against darkness and death, the sacrifice for our sins, he did all this as our representative. We hear this in Paul's teaching from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Verses 21 and 22 that we heard read earlier, where Paul says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, Adam being the representative head of humanity, what is true of Adam is true for all of humanity, we all die in him. So also, Paul continues, in Christ shall all be made alive. All those who find their lives in Christ will be made alive because he is now our representative head. He represents us. And so on the cross, he represented us. He bears the destiny of all creation. What is true of him is true for all those who are 
connected to him. We don't need to go into it, but Romans 6, that beautiful passage on baptism, proclaims this reality that we have been so thoroughly united with Jesus through baptism that what is true of him is true of us. His death is our death. His new resurrection life is now ours as well. Jesus is our representative, like David, who battles against Goliath as Israel's representative warrior, God conquered death and sin on our behalf. And we can share now in his victory by embracing Jesus through faith and repentance. Embracing that good news that in him God's kingdom has come. So in his death, Jesus secures the victory of God's kingdom. And that is what, Christ Church? Good news. Good news. But it's not only that. There's a fourth thing. There's a fourth way that Jesus explains the kingdom. He explains the meaning of God's kingdom coming on earth through his resurrection. In his resurrection, Jesus inaugurates, begins God's kingdom. All four Gospels give eyewitness testimony of those who experienced the living Jesus after he was bodily raised from the dead. And the earliest followers of Jesus struggled with this. What in the world does this mean? How do we interpret it? And as we heard from Paul, they interpreted according to the Scriptures. And in the New Testament, and from the Gospels to the sermons and Acts to the Epistles, we discover their conclusions. But why did they struggle to understand the meaning of Jesus' resurrection? Well, I think the best way for us to answer that and see that in His resurrection, Jesus inaugurates God's kingdom, is to remember John chapter 11. It's such a helpful passage. If you don't know this, Jesus is is coming to Jerusalem for the final time, and he is coming to Bethany, where the three, the two sisters and Lazarus, Mary and Martha and Lazarus live, and he encounters Martha, and her brother has just died, and Jesus says to her that Lazarus will one day, will soon rise again, and she responds to him by saying, I know, I know. He will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. At the end of time, when God shows up on the scene to make all things right, to bring about his everlasting kingdom, he will raise the dead. I know that's true. You see, in Jewish thought that was informed by the Old Testament, the idea of the resurrection of the body was intricately woven together with the renewal of creation as a whole, when God's kingdom would finally come. And so they thought if the resurrection was here, then everything must be here all at once. And so Martha's response is a good one theologically, but it is incomplete. It's incomplete. Jesus' response gives her the missing piece. When he says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. In me, all that is coming true. All sad things are coming untrue, and all beautiful things are materializing in our world. Resurrection, the renewed creation, all that is present in me. I am the resurrection and the life. 
You see, the resurrection of Jesus has implications beyond his own return to life. In Jesus' death and resurrection, he acts on our behalf, on behalf of us and of all creation, as a new Adam, as the second Adam. He is the resurrection. In dying, he takes upon himself the judgment of the world. In rising from the dead, he inaugurates the renewal of the whole creation, including the physical bodies of men and women like you and me. As John recounts there in Jesus' words, therefore, whoever believes in Jesus will live and share in that resurrection now and in the future when Jesus, when God brings it in its fullness. What I'm saying is that in his resurrection, Jesus opens the door to the new creation and he holds it open and he invites us to come in. A way has been made for you. I am the resurrection. I am the way. I am the life. I am the truth. Come, enter into the banquet that my Father has prepared for you from before the foundations of the world. We can enter that door right now. We can experience that resurrection power of God in our lives and in our relationships today. In Jesus, God's new day has dawned at last. God's kingdom is here, and this is good news. Can I see a show of hands who disagrees? No. This is good news. Let's go back to where we began. Mark chapter 1. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying this, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Christ Church, we are a Christian church. A group of people whom God has called to gather around the magnetic center of the good news that in Jesus, God's kingdom has arrived. It has shown up on planet Earth. New creation has dawned. We are people of the daybreak. We are daybreak people. Sons and daughters of the king of light and life. And at the heart of this community, this church, we are an astonished people. That ought to blow us away. The announcement of the kingdom of God being present should blow us away. Forgive us, God, when it doesn't. Are you astonished? Do you believe that in Jesus, God's kingdom has come? Have you repented? Turn from following your own kingdom to follow the kingdom of God? We're going to ask ourselves that question next week more thoroughly. As we continue this look into the good news of Jesus, we can't end here. We also have to look at the response that Jesus calls us to. Next week, we'll look at how Jesus calls us to respond to his announcement of the good news through faith and repentance. But Christ Church, in the interim, as we, in this next week, 
let this news of God's kingdom coming in Jesus be something that blows you away and something that animates your life in this world, right here in Winston-Salem or in Lexington or wherever you're living, whether it's in Elkin or Sparta, wherever you come to us from, let this astonish you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.